Hi everyone, welcome and uh, it's great to be with you today. Um, our sermon text is uh, from Matthew chapter 5, will be in verses 17, 18, 19, and 20. It's a continuation of our series of the Sermon on the Mount. And the sermon title today is entitled, Inerrant or Infallible. Uh, and these are two words, and we'll talk about them in a moment, but these are two words we use to describe Scripture when we're talking about Scripture. Um, and this passage, if you haven't read it, by the way, you can pause and go ahead and, and, and read it now. Um, but for those of you who have read it, uh, this passage is sort of interesting because Jesus here says that, hey, he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And uh, immediately when I read this passage, I think, wait a minute, even, even some of the weird laws, <laughs> even some of the ones we're not really sure what to do with, right? Um, and, and we're going to talk about that tonight. We're going to talk about that today, this morning, whenever you watch this video. Um, what that means. When Jesus said he came to fulfill the law, what does that actually mean for you and for me today? All right, last week I talked about salt and light, and it was sort of an encouraging, you can do it type sermon. Today, um, for this sermon, what I wanted to do was a bit more of a, an academic study, if you will, or a bit more of a teaching time, if you will, rather than an encouragement time. And so um, that's what we're going to talk about scripture today. And I actually grew up in a church. Uh, I didn't grow up going to church all the time, but then when I started going to church, um, I remember my youth group and when I was a teenager, they never really talked about the Old Testament, right? It was a lot about Jesus and a lot about the epistles and Galatians, Ephesians, Romans, things like that. But I don't ever really remember hearing about the Old Testament much. Um, and it's fine to always to talk about Jesus and everything, but I actually ended up going then to a Bible college when I was 18 and um, not knowing anything about the Old Testament. I actually failed my first Bible class, Old Testament survey, because I just didn't know enough about it. And it, everything was so new to me. I ended up failing the class and having to retake it my second year in university. Um, I don't know what that means for me as a pastor, but we'll just blow past that. Um, and I'm not sure why this is. I think some Christians maybe think the Old Testament can be a little confusing sometimes. Sometimes Christians might think it's, it's a little bit too much or a little bit too out of our normal life. I'm not sure. Um, I actually, at my first, or one of my, my last church I was at in Colorado, there was a wonderful lady in our church who loved the Old Testament so much, um, she would actually give me a dollar every time I preached on it. So if I preached on the Old Testament after I'd get down from the pulpit, she'd say, great job, and stick a dollar in my hand. She was really nice. Um, but you know, some of us are sort of weary with the Old Testament, right? We're not really sure what to do with it. Um, and Jesus, as we see in the text here, in Matthew 5, actually holds the Old Testament in really high esteem, right? He says that he came to fulfill it. And so let's look at this text, and then let's talk about it and see what we can see. Verse 17, he says, do not think I have come to abolish the law. Uh, in other words, do not think I have come to start a new religion. Do not think I have come to, to teach you about a new God, right? To the Jewish people, his audience, he's saying, don't think I'm trying to teach you about a new God or something totally different. What I'm trying to do is to fulfill all of these things. The reason God has sent me is to fulfill all of these things you've spent your life reading. Because in verse 18, he says all of it, every single bit of that law, every single bit of the law and the prophets will come to pass. And then in 19, he says that we cannot set aside these commandments, right? That we have to actually fulfill these commands and fulfill the law. And that if we do so, we will be considered great in the kingdom of heaven. 
Um, and it's kind of tough for us today. I don't know about you. Maybe you don't feel like it is. I do. I sort of start reading this and I start to get really weirded out. Wait a minute. Does this mean I need to follow all of these laws? Because there's some weird ones in there, right? There's some things in there that I just don't do, right? There's all these laws about what you can do on the Sabbath, or there's all these laws about, there's one even, we're not even allowed to collect firewood on the Sabbath. Like, does that mean I can't collect firewood on the Sabbath? What does this mean? Okay, Um, we're going to get to that. So let's just pause for a second, and I want us to think about Scripture as a whole. Okay, let's not just focus on what Jesus said and then what the, the law says through Moses and everything, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Let's think about Scripture as a whole. And then let's think about this story arc of God. Jesus, oftentimes when he was traveling around, would actually get in trouble with the Pharisees because he was breaking the laws of the Pharisees, right? He was hanging out with sinners, people who were ceremonially unclean. Um, His disciples one time were plucking grain on the Sabbath, and that really upset him. Um, There was one time he healed someone on the Sabbath, and that really upset the Pharisees. And so Jesus is sort of butting up against some of these laws, too. And and then immediately, the reader is forced to wonder, well, wait a minute, Jesus just said he came to fulfill the law, but then he's breaking laws. This is a contradiction, (laughs) right? Um, Some people, if they read the Bible at face value and just look at it as a list of facts or a list of rules, will say that there are contradictions because of things like this. And I understand that perception, but let me encourage you that this is, in fact, not a contradiction. There's a couple of distinctions we need to make when we talk about some of the laws in the, in, in the Bible, especially when it comes to the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees, the laws they followed, for example, um, let's just take the, the one of Jesus' disciples picking grain on the Sabbath. This was an interpretation of the law of not to work on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees sort of extrapolated all of these rules from that on how we should live. And so a Pharisee or a rabbi would come up with an interpretation of the law, would put that into practice for he and his disciples, and then over time, these things would become well-known and people would respect the disciples of this rabbi and this rabbi, and they would begin to institute these things, and they actually wrote all of these down in a book. And so though there is a lot in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, by Jesus' time, there were these books full of rabbinical laws of how people should live and how to interpret every single little rule and exactly how to live it out in life. And so Jesus, as a rabbi, is coming along sort of doing the same thing here. He's a rabbi, he has has his disciples, his followers, and he is sort of setting out his interpretations of the Old Testament law and how we should live. But what he's saying is totally different. If we look at the text, he's talking about righteousness. He is talking about, from the Beatitudes, remember, these blessings from God, he is talking about righteousness and how we can experience the kingdom of God here and now. And so what Jesus is teaching then to his disciples and to his followers here is that we are seeking, according to verse 19, the kingdom of heaven. How do we get the kingdom of heaven? We go back to the Beatitudes and we see that it's from these things he lists out. Right? And then in verse 20, he says that I tell you, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So it's all in this framework of what righteous is. Is righteous following all of the laws to the letter of the law and trying to live a perfect rule, boundaried life? Or is righteousness living 
with God's law on our hearts, living with the things God cares about on our hearts? Is righteousness living like God and bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth? Should that be our first priority? Because the Pharisees had their righteousness, didn't they? Praying loud on the street corner for everyone to hear, giving so that everyone would notice, being holy so that they could sort of be above everyone else. But Jesus doesn't have the same interpretation of these Old Testament laws. Jesus, in fact, comes in and is hanging out with sinners and is spending time with people Pharisees didn't spend time with, is loving people and caring for the sick and the wounded and, 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 and the people who are outcasts of society. And Jesus is saying, no, what you need to understand is that God's righteousness and the whole purpose of all of these things is not to have a million rules but to be righteous in the eyes of God, to do the things that God would do, to, to love people the way God loves them. And many of us, um, when we think about the Pharisees, have sort of done this with our faith, or maybe we've had a season like this in our faith, where we tried to be the, the rule followers, we tried to have an answer for everything, right? Um, and I think that we all sort of start out with the best of intentions when we do these things. I think the Pharisees and the, and the teachers of the law and the Sadducees started out with the best of intentions, but they headed down a road that was so far from what God had intended that when Jesus came, Jesus came to help them get back on track. Remember, Jesus wasn't starting a new religion. Jesus was coming to, to lead and guide people. This is why John the Baptist came first and was urging people to repent and be baptized so that when Jesus came, they would be ready for his teaching. Jesus came to help us, to help the Pharisees, to help everyone get back on track. And so why the sermon title then? Why are we talking about how to interpret scripture? Is it infallible? Is it inerrant? What do those words even mean? Let me give you a brief definition and then mention why I titled the sermon this way. Inerrant often is defined that the Bible has no errors whatsoever, right? That all details are 100% accurate, all truth is 100% accurate, and we can believe everything in it 100%. And many Christians hold to this view and say absolutely 100% must be this way. Infallible means a similar thing, but a little different. Infallible, when we say that word in English, what we mean is that this book is 100% trustworthy, that this book will not lead us astray from the truth of God. Meaning that while the details may be in question, there is no defect in the Bible's teaching or trustworthiness. The Bible has an impossibility of failure for truth in our lives. And the reason I mention these two words is because it's really important to know how we think and believe about Scripture, right? If the Bible in the Old Testament says that there were 300 Philistines, was it 300 or 299, <laughs> right? Now, one person may say, of course, it's 300. It has to be 300. It says so in the Bible, and that's fine. And another person may say, well, it could have been 298, but it doesn't change the story about who God is and what God is trying to teach us. And the reason I bring this up is not to tell you what to believe or tell you how to approach the scripture with those two words or any other word you choose to define scripture with, but to show you what Jesus was concerned with. It doesn't seem that Jesus was concerned with every single little minute detail. It seems from this text anyways that Jesus was much more concerned with the fulfillment of the teachings of God. Jesus was much more concerned that people knew there was a God in heaven who loved them and that all of the law and the prophets pointed to that truth than worrying about whether or not we should pick grain on the Sabbath day. So, church, let me encourage you now. 
And we're going to go into a teaching time here in a minute where I lay some differences out in Scripture. But let me just encourage you. As Christians, it's good to know what we believe and why we believe it. But let us not be people who obsess about details. Let us not be people who obsess over details that we can't prove one way or the other. Because when I look at Christ, um, and we'll get into this now, it seems to me that Christ didn't do that. That Christ was obsessed about the righteousness of God in our lives as his followers. And that was his number one priority. Living a life after God for the sake of others. But still some of you are sitting there thinking and you're sort of annoyed. You're thinking, no, but we have to know the details. We have to know exactly what to do with these things. And if you're saying, Sam, that we have to follow every law, then I am breaking the law because I shaved this morning. Because the Old Testament says that men should not trim their beards. Let me address this then, since some of you are thinking about it, and it is an issue that we need to talk about. There were three types of law in the Old Testament. Did you know this? There's three types of law in the Old Testament. There were ceremonial laws, there were civic laws, and there were ethic and moral laws. See, the civic laws were given for the nation of Israel to exist as a society, right? It's very important. But that's not us. We don't live in Israel. We are not living under a God-ordained kingdom right now. We live in Switzerland. We live maybe somewhere else. But for us, we are Gentiles living abroad. <laughs> and we even see this in, New, in the New Testament with the Apostle Paul telling people, you know, in, in modern-day Turkey and Greece not to worry so much about the laws, but to worry about pursuing Jesus, right? So the first type of laws are civic laws. Many of the laws in the Old Testament are how to operate within the nation of Israel at that time. The second type of laws are ceremonial laws. And these are rituals and customs and things practiced in the nation. And there's some overlap. But let's look at the number one implementation of, of ceremonial laws, which was the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, right? There was a whole sacrificial system with feasts and, and sacrifice days um, for people to atone for their sins. It goes into so, so many laws that you have to have, you know, the spotless lamb. And if you can't afford the lamb, then you can buy a pigeon. And if you can't afford a pigeon, then you could go in together on something. You know, there's all of these laws. But a couple weeks ago, we had Easter, didn't we? And we need to remember that when Jesus came, died for us, was resurrected on the third day, that this ushered in a new covenant. This ushered in a new understanding of what ceremonial laws were. And at that moment, it becomes, for you and for me, a faith-based system in Jesus Christ that we believe Jesus was the Son of God and was resurrected and does sit at the right hand of God waiting for his return. That Jesus paid the sacrificial cost for all of us to atone for our sins. And so all of those ceremonial laws no longer are applicable to you and to me today because Christ has ushered in a new covenant for you and for me. How beautiful is that? And then lastly, the third type of laws are the ethical or moral laws. These are the ones we want to hang on to <laughs> because they reveal to us who God is and the best way to live, right? They reveal to us God's righteousness, right? So, you know, 4,000 years ago, do not murder was a good rule. Still a good rule right? A long time ago, do not steal, good way to live. Still a good way to live. Do not steal. It's bad. Trust me, okay? Um, the ethical laws, the moral laws, the things where we learn about the heart of God, these are the things we want to cling to, right? These are the truths we want to cling to. One of the great ones, um, some of the ethical laws are about how we treat people, 
In Leviticus, it talks about caring for the resident alien, right? This is an ethical law where Jesus or where God says to the people, hey, if there's a foreigner living in your land that doesn't have enough to eat, make sure they have enough to eat. This is a moral law where God says, I care about everyone. Make sure people have enough to eat, right? So when we look at the laws of the Old Testament, we realize that, that many of the civic ones no longer apply to us, and that the ceremonial ones no longer apply to us in the new covenant of Jesus Christ, that what we want to focus on, focus on, excuse me, is the moral and ethical laws that lead us to an understanding of God's righteousness. So when Jesus is talking about fulfilling the law here, he is talking about opening up the nation of Israel to all people, to Gentiles, to you, to me, to people around the world. He is talking about how he has fulfilled or will at this time. He hasn't yet, but he will fulfill all of those ceremonial laws. And that you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, should pursue all of the ethical and moral laws, right? And spoiler alert, if you look at the next couple of passages, this is exactly what Jesus does. Look at the headings. Murder. He goes right into murder. Pretty important ethical law. He goes right into adultery, divorce, oaths, eye for an eye. Uh, what else does he go into? Love for enemies. Giving to the needy. So immediately after talking about fulfilling the law, Jesus then goes into a description for his followers of the importance of these ethical and moral rules and how we can understand the heart of God here and now to experience the kingdom of God. So yes, he came to fulfill the law. And he came to set us straight, to get us away from the pharisaical understanding of all of these rules and boundaries and guidelines to say, understand the heart of God. And we'll get into this next week, but this is why with murder, he says, it's not about murdering someone, but it's about what you think in your heart, right? This is the heart of God. This is righteousness. We see what Jesus came to do, and that was to set you and me, to set the Pharisees straight and to understand that all of these laws were about understanding who God is and what God would have for us. And so we read scripture to know more about God. I mean, really. You and I read Scripture, not just the New Testament, but all of Scripture to understand more about the heart of God and who God is. Because, listen, even if you say, well, I don't need the Old Testament laws, I just want to focus on Jesus. Let me tell you, all Scripture points to Jesus. Every single bit of this reveals to us who Jesus is. The Psalms, the prophets, the law, the narratives of King David and Saul, they reveal to us elements of Jesus Christ. And so, for you and for me today, we need to understand that this book, this whole book, is essential to understanding the heart of God and His calling for our lives. And I want to share with you five things. I usually don't do bullet points where you, you know, take notes or whatever, but I, just, I want to do this today. I want to share with you five things that are important to our understanding of the Scriptures. Okay? These are things from my own education that I have learned and I have really hung on to that I really, really like. Um, and I think we can learn together uh, through these five things, okay? So five things about how you and I should read the Bible. First thing, we should read the Bible prayerfully. When we talk about reading Scripture, we need to understand that before we even can understand this book, we need to ask that God would reveal His truth to us, right? There are many people who know this book, who know the facts of this book, who study this book, who do not believe in God. You can read this as a textbook. You can read this as an academic discipline. But for the Christian, 
If you desire to grow in the righteousness of God, then you and I need to read this book prayerfully. We need to go to God and ask God to reveal to us through Scripture and through the power of His Spirit, His truth, and His heart. That this book would be something that is not just a book, but it would be a supernatural agent of transformation in our lives. So we need to go to Scripture prayerfully. We also need to go to Scripture together. To read Scripture well is to read Scripture communally, in groups, with one another, with a close friend, with with family, whatever it is. Because none of us have all knowledge, none of us have all experience, none of us have all wisdom. And so your perception coming from this country in this time period may be completely different from someone's perception from another country in another time period. Your skin being white may be completely different than another person's skin being brown and how they experience the scriptures and when Jesus talks about making the captives free. See, we learn from each other. And so communally, we read scripture together so that we can understand more. So we read prayerfully, we read communally. And the third thing is we read rigorously. This is very important. We need to use our brains. Once we've prayed, once we realize we don't know everything, we need to use our brains and look at history. We need to look at context. We need to look at commentaries. We need to look at all the educational tools we have. We need to commit to reading and seeking truth with our intelligence that God has given us. Whatever measure it is, we all have different measures of it. But we need to seek to learn and to have this book be our priority. We need to read this book rigorously and with intent. Because remember, this book actually was not written to us originally, right? These things were not originally written to us. However, it is for us and it is about us. And so for us to learn about ourselves and learn about God and to learn about what God have for us today, we need to read this book rigorously, committed to it daily, and put a high importance on it. So we read it prayerfully, we read it communally, we read it rigorously, and we read it forth charitably. This is really important. We want to be people who read with grace on matters that are non-essential to our core beliefs. So we have our core beliefs, yes, I understand that. But then outside of that, we need to read this book with a lot of charity, understanding that people will have different viewpoints, people will have different interpretations, people will have different application, that we may hold different views and positions, but we understand that we can all bring something to this. And so we need to be charitable and graceful with each other. And assuming, again, that matters that are not essential to our core beliefs then we need to give grace and charity to one another as we read this book. And then lastly, we need to read this book holistically. We need to read this book as a whole. We need to read it all together as one account of God and his people whom he loves. Um, One of the things I was trained in is to always ask the question, where is it written? If we hold something as a strong belief in our life, then ask the question, where is it written? What does scripture say on the matter? We need to let Scripture interpret Scripture, meaning that if we have a truth, it will be proven true in other areas of Scripture, that all truth can be plumbed more deeply in this book, and it will just come out as more and more true, right? We need to understand, as Jesus pointed out, that he came for each and every word to be made true, that not a stroke of any pen would be wiped away until it was fulfilled. And so we need to believe in the whole Bible as a unified work, for our benefit and for our knowledge, for our learning and for our wisdom. 
So those five things, one more time, is a prayerful reading, we need to have communal reading, we need to have rigorous reading, we need to have charitable reading, and we need to have holistic reading. Okay? If you want to come up with an acronym for that, you can. But church, we are the international Protestant church. And to be Protestant is to be people of the book. To be people of this book, who place this book higher than all other stuff, higher than country, higher than you know, job, higher than everything. This is our compass. This is our guide. This is what we learn from. And to know and study this book, because I believe the heart of Jesus is to know and study this book. That we would understand God, that we would understand how God loves and cares for his planet and his people. And that all the scriptures, as I mentioned before, and I can't say it enough, all scriptures ultimately point to Jesus. Point to the truth of Jesus, point to the truth of who sent Jesus. And so we read the whole book with these five things in mind, knowing that this is the thing God has for us. And we let this book then deepen our faith in Jesus. You know, last week, I'm going to close with this. Last week I talked about good envy, how we can have blessings of Jesus in our life or blessings of God in our life, and other people see it, and they say, I want that. I don't know what that person has, but I want it. I good envy. Um, And how many of us became a believer because we saw things in other people's lives and said, I want what that person has. When it comes to this book, I just want to say this. Um, This is one of the reasons I became a Christian. My mother, when she became a Christian, she became a Christian before any of us in our family and started dragging us kids to church. And when I was 11, 12, 13 years old, I saw my mom get up every single morning before the sun and read the Bible. I thought she was crazy. Like, why would you wake up early and read the Bible, even on a Saturday? Like, it's insane, right? Um, but every morning, it seemed like every morning, maybe it wasn't. But to me as a kid, it seemed like every single morning she was up early and she was pouring over the scriptures in one of those really big study Bibles, you know, just, just reading, reading, reading. And it wasn't just that she got up early and read the Bible. It was that the Bible changed her life. As her son, I saw that she was a different person. And I saw that she was healthier, that she was happier, that things were better in our family. And I said simply, I want that. And that's why I became a Christian, honestly. Church, you need to understand, we need to believe that this book can change our lives. This book will change our lives. This book is the promise of God to lead and guide us in this life. We can know that our righteousness can surpass that of the Pharisees. That it can be like Christ. We cannot forget the work of Jesus, that he came to fulfill everything in this book. And that is the revelation of who God is to you and to me, that you and I would be righteous in God's sight. And so my hope and prayer for you is that you would know through this book, through community, through whatever means God uses, that we can know the truth of God. That we can believe there is a God who loves us. And so may you read prayerfully, may you read in community, may you read rigorously, and may you read charitably and holistically as God reveals his truth to you. Thanks so much. We'll see you soon.